The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello and welcome to another special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's podcast was recorded live at our Future of Work event, Thursday, March 11th. This was the fourth discussion in a series on the topic of the future of work. Today's uh, presentation features Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez as the keynote for our event. Hello and welcome to Capital Weekly's Future of Work conference. This is the final presentation in our four session uh, series. Today's topic will be the future of work and we'll feature the keynote from Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez. And we're very excited to have her. Uh, I will go ahead and get out of the way, but I, I do want to thank our sponsors. Capital Weekly is a 501c3 nonprofit. We could not do these events without the support of our underwriters. And tops among them are the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, TASSEN. They are a presenting sponsor for everything we do and have been with us uh, basically since the moment we started. And then supporting our event series this year is the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, the California Building Industry Association, and the California Professional Firefighters. And we thank them very much. They make these possible. And uh, I will also remind you that if you are not able to watch the whole thing or you want to revisit this or maybe pick up one you missed, we will be posting these as podcasts and also as videos at the Capital Weekly website. Just go to Capital Weekly slash events. You'll find those. Um, we will have those posted by early next week, probably Monday. So with that, I'm going to turn you over to Capital Weekly editor, John Howard. John Howard has a long history in California journalism and has covered politics basically every day since 1982. We wish he would take a little bit of a break, but he never takes a day off. So um, he will introduce- Too long a history. Too long. There you go. So uh, also, and if you have any questions, please pose them in the Q&A function and we'll collect those and we'll ask them after the keynote or as many of them as we can get to. Thanks again for tuning in. And uh, John, I'll hand it over to you. Tim, thank you very much. Uh, again, I'm John Howard. I'm the editor of Capital Weekly. And it is my pleasure today to introduce Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, Democrat from San Diego, the 80th district. Uh, who's cut quite a wide path here in the legislature in the last few years, and maybe one of the few with a national profile in many respects. Uh, she authored a great many bills that got signed, very important bills, um, including benefits for part-time employees, worker protections uh, for people, regardless, for workers, regardless of their immigration status, safety protections for workers, um, and of course, AB5, and that's going to be part of our discussion today. I think the reclassification of workers to employees instead of independent contractors. And we we're hoping to address that a little bit and as part of the theme of our future of work, what happens next with AB5 and what happens next as you see the labor landscape in California as we hopefully emerge from this pandemic. Lorena, thank you very much for being here. Thank you, John. And, and thank you, Tim. And thank you to Capital Weekly for inviting me to speak on an a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Um, obviously, it's something we, we work hard on. 
But we tend to say in our office, it's not just the future of work, we should be worried about the future of workers. And so I think it's really important in order to create the type of um, background necessary to look at where we're going in the future is to really look at how we got here. And so we often um, forget why it is that we're running into kind of the challenges that we're running into. So I think it's important to start with that. When you look at um, state regulations and work and, and the state requiring certain things um, uh, that employers provide for employees, I'd li- I like to take it back to about 1911. That's when states started passing workers' compensation laws. Um, that meant if, if an employee was hurt on the job, um, that they were entitled to a, an insurance, a, a, a uh, restitution, if you will, they, that they could have some income replacement. Um, it was an insurance feature that was required because of very dangerous jobs that existed at that time. By the way, there are still dangerous jobs that exist. Um, so in 1911, we had a, a number of states start passing um, workers' compensation laws. And in 1914 is when we had the first kind of, uh, I guess, creative challenge to that. The Lehigh Valley Coal Company asserted that they didn't have to provide workers' compensation to the people who worked in their coal mine because, in fact, they said um, that they weren't in the business of coal mining. Um, if this sounds familiar, uh, you'll know why. They, they, they said, despite their name and despite what they did, that they were allowing workers access to their coal mine and purchasing from these independent entrepreneurs, that these coal miners were, in fact, independent contractors, and thus um, the company was not responsible for the workers' compensation. Uh, that, because of a court case and a very famous jurist uh, named uh, Learned Hand, if you attend law school, you learn a lot about his opinions, um, but they, they basically said this is bullshit. You know, they, it was absurd. He shut it down. He didn't use the BS word, um, but he did shut it down and just said, um, you can't just classify people as independent contractors to get, get out of paying workers' compensation. It's funny because here we are um, over 100 years later, still fighting the same fight. But what happened after kind of that initial case is you kind of had some interesting factors going on. This is throughout the 1920s, right? You had, um, you had uh, a previous very strong, robust labor movement that because times were better, what was being um, decimated. You know, you had a, a drop in unionization of about 40% heading into the 1920s. Um, you had a situation where the richest were getting richer, the top 1% were hoarding 20% of the wealth, which doesn't even seem bad by our standards today, but but was a cause for concern as we moving into um, the depression. And of course you had a, a, a global pandemic that um, led into the roaring 20s and then finally a a depression that caused um, mass anxiety. So when President Roosevelt was elected, his way of dealing with with the depression is really codifying and creating this standard, this social compact that we rely on today, a social compact that says, we're going to create these laws and these responsibilities for employers and employees, and we're going to have a safety net that is attached to your work history. Um, And that's important because that's what we rely on today. So if you look at what President Roosevelt did, it started in 1935, he created unemployment insurance, social security, the National Labor Relations Act, which would govern at the time that was the Wagner Act, which would govern how employers and employees interact with each other when the employees wanted collective action, wanted to unionize. 
1938, he passed the Fair Labor Standards Act or signed into law. Um, and that, of course, provided the minimum wage and, and the, the, the standards that all employees um, and employers had to abide by. And so we started getting into to get out of the depression, this idea that at work, there had to be some basic rules There had to be um, a social safety net that was uh, was paid for by both employee and the employer, but provided the insurance in times and tough times that uh, people could be secure. Um, interestingly, healthcare wasn't part of that discussion, and it is now it's a really interesting kind of separate discussion. And I want to take that one out because I think it does have ramifications for the future. The way healthcare became a, a um, this institutionalized uh, product that you got at work was around 1942 with a thing called the Stabilization Act. It was during the war and it put a cap on wages basically. And so the way that employers would attract workers is by adding benefits. And one of those was healthcare because they couldn't, of course, increase the wages because there was a um, reduced workforce. And so the Stabilization Act really prompted a lot of unions to start bargaining for healthcare, first healthcare, um, general healthcare, and then vision and dental as well. Um, and then it became more of a norm to be, have your healthcare through work as well, which was codified not until Obamacare with some problems that create, I think, a long-term problem for healthcare and the future of work. Um, but we continued to provide, uh, you know, to, to have um, a basis for uh, things coming out of your paycheck, if you will, Medicare, Medicaid, of course, in 1965. And then here in California, we continued the tradition with workplace rights, such as paid family. We were the first state to, to ensure that that workers were paying into a, an insurance fund so that they could take paid family leave, um, paid sick leave a, a few days so that the employer would be paying for the employee. And all of these different things we've created in law have a balance. You know, um, some we say that the employer pays for portions of Social Security, SSI, and Medicare. The employer pays for unemployment insurance and workers' compensation. Here in California, they pay for sick leave. And then there are some that the employees pay for, but their 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 contribution ensures that that money's there. Half of Social Security, SSI, and Medicare. Um, in California, paid family leave and temporary disability insurance are paid for by the employee but they're required to be paid for because then we know that insurance is available in bad times. Um, and then of course, healthcare, which is a hybrid situation. And because I, I would argue because the Obamacare um, tying it to the number of hours you work has really created a new problem um, that we will see in the future if we don't take healthcare, your healthcare coverage dependency out of the issues of work. Um, so what do we have now? Well, just like at the turn of the century, you know, um, we have a declining or we did have a declining union membership. Um, and we have the rise of misclassification by employers who want to get out of providing these types of benefits, the social compact. Um, and so they've classified workers as independent contractors, sometimes in a way that makes sense, but often in a way that doesn't make sense and actually just pulls away from that social security net. Um, and so in California, of course, we had the Dynamex decision uh, when it, I, I find it fascinating that most people who want to talk about AB5 and misclassification have never read Dynamex because I think once you do, um, it really lays out why this was necessary at this time. So it's a fascinating decision um, passed by a bipartisan unanimous Supreme Court in California, just saying that this has gone too far. The use of the previous standard Borello, at least in this wage and hour case that came before them, 
has been really abused by employers to suggest that workers don't have these basic rights anymore. And so Borello was an 11 part test. It was a weighted test. You, the employer or the employee could never be really certain how a judge would come out on it. So the court says, we want to be more clear. If you work for somebody, if you're in their line of work, if you're doing the work that they do and you're under their control and direction, you're, you're an employee. Um, and people freaked out. So people freaked out for a variety of reasons. Number one, because it only pertained to wage and the actual lawsuit only pertained to wage and hour claims. And so it was unclear when or how the court would expand that to other parts of the labor code. And then other people freaked out because traditionally there have been jobs that don't have um, the things that were talked about in Dynamics, the, the risk of exploitation that have been operating as true little, little businesses that provide for their own safety net. They provide for their own um, insurance. And so, you know, how do we deal with that type of grouping? How do we determine the differences? And that's what we tried to do in AB5. So AB5 not only codified Dynamics into the labor code for everything else so that there was no more uncertainty. People aren't going to have to sue to, to decide if the ABC um, test provides them protections under unemployment insurance or under workers' compensation, right? It was going to apply broadly, but it was also a bill that was created to, to provide exemptions. A lot of people like to say that it's a bad bill because there were exemptions. Well, that's what AB5 was for, to say, let's look at employment in California and see what are those areas where individuals have been acting as small businesses have um, traditionally that there's a high barrier of entry into that um, employment feature that they can bargain for themselves, that they often have the ability because of their wages and their bargaining ability to provide their own safety net. And the ones that we worry a little bit less about being abused by a misclassified system. So that's what we tried to do in AB5. And of course, what happened is the gig companies really want an exemption for drivers. Now, the ironic thing about that is if you look at the Dynamics cases, you're literally talking about not app-based, but drivers, delivery drivers who were misclassified. So um, it seemed to us that there was no way we could possibly exempt uh, drivers out of a AB5 bill when that's what Dynamics itself, the, the justices looked at. These were employees. And if, by every standard you look at, the people who drive for, um, well, any previous standard you look at, the people who drive for, for, for Uber or Lyft or DoorDash, they're employees. And, and we thought that was very clear. So of course, um, the company spent over $200 million convincing people that uh, there, there was a new way. There was a new way for them to protect their workers and to protect um, the flexibility and the choice of workers to work the way they wanted. And if you look at exit polls, voters really thought that that's what Prop 22 would do. It would give people that opportunity, that choice. It would pay them more than minimum wage and give them health care benefits. Of course, none of that has proven to be true. Um, so Prop 22 was passed, uh, the most ever spent on an initiative in California. And we find ourselves kind of in this position of like, what now? Well, I will say that after Dynamics, one of the lead talking points by people who either wanted to hire independent contractors or even some that wanted to be independent contractors was let workers decide, right? Let workers decide if they want to be independent contractors or if they want to be employees. They should have that choice. So we heard a lot about choice and led into the flexibility argument. Well, what we what we argued is our our labor laws don't provide for that type of choice. And there's a reason why when you allow individuals to supposedly choose, whether it would be choose to make less than minimum wage or choose to forego workers' compensation or choose to be an independent contractor, 
then the employer says, well, that choice is good for me, right? That choice is good for me because now I don't have to pay benefits or I don't have to pay into social security or, or workers' compensation. I like that choice. So now I'm only going to hire people who decided to make that choice. Well, when employers do that and they do it overwhelmingly, of course, in, in lower skilled jobs, um, then there is no choice. Then workers don't have a choice. Then no worker gets covered by the protections that that not just me as a legislator or we as the state, but this this whole country has been um, really operating on for almost 100 years now. So um we, we talked about that a lot. It didn't seem to get through, but right after Prop 22, something happened that really solidified and, and made people realize that what we were saying was true. Um, what happened was Vons and a grocer in Southern California um, despite, decided, uh, despite having had for years delivery drivers from Vons themselves who were employees, and in fact, in Northern California, they're they're unionized. And so they escaped kind of this, this problem that happened in Southern California. They were not unionized in Southern California, but they were decent middle-class jobs, you know, paying $22 an hour um, with healthcare and benefits. And they decided that rather than continue to utilize their own employees, now that Prop 22 passed and it was legal, that they were going to get rid of those workers and, and um, just use independent contractors through, through uh, the gig companies. So we actually saw in real time a company take away middle-class jobs and replace them with lower paid, less than minimum wage independent contractor jobs because they could. So those workers who said, I want the choice, I want to be an employee, I want this job, had no say in the matter. They were in fact let go. And the only thing that protected workers in that position was a union contract. So in Northern California, where the workers had organized and they had a voice at the table and they had a union contract. Um, it will no doubt be a, a, a point of, of um, discussion and future bargaining efforts. But for now, those jobs were protected. And it, in my opinion, that shows um, just kind of the counterbalance of what unions can protect against this move to just making the workforce cheaper. Um, and so with that, you know, what happens? There is a simple question. Why does it matter? Why does it what happens when our social safety net doesn't work out the way that President Roosevelt and kind of post uh, depression uh, individuals saw the world working, what happens? And what we know is taxpayers can and should, in my opinion, um, provide a safety net for all workers and all people to keep them out of poverty, right? I'm a good progressive Democrat. I believe in the social safety net. But I'll tell you what, I believe much more in work and that work should pay a dignified wage. So what we have today is the social safety net, the, the safety net we've created originally for people who couldn't work, actually subsidizing those who do. So for example, if you don't make enough on your job, um, like you know a quarter of Amazon workers, then you can sign up for CalFresh and you can get food stamps. Now we might question why if you're working for the richest company in the world, you can't um, earn enough to pay your grocery bill um, that seems like it could be a separate problem, but we've provided a safety net as we should to keep people out of deep poverty. If uh, you're unemployed between jobs and you need to take, or you need to take time off to have a baby, you can always go on CalFresh or on CalWorks, right? So we have these programs that were really intended for people who can't work, but instead they're filling in for the people who do work. And if your wages are too low in California in particular, we love the earned income tax credit. And as somebody who has championed the earned income tax credit, Hey, I'll do anything to keep people from living in poverty. But the reality is that we are actually subsidizing the wages of low wage workers with taxpayer money. 
So our social safety net becomes more stressed, fewer people paying in and more people um, utilizing it because they have to, to get by. Despite the fact that we have large corporations who have record profits and whose CEOs are making record amount of money. That's what's happening now. That's not sustainable. But it's clearly not sustainable in times of crisis like we're seeing now. So um, just as an example, during um, the pandemic, you know, a lot of different situations that workers found themselves in. Maybe they got sick on the job. Maybe they were temporarily disabled on the job because they got COVID. Maybe they need to stay home with a loved one. Maybe they became unemployed. Well, we have a number of programs to help fill in those gaps for employees, right? We have unemployment insurance and in record number of people are on it right now. Um, we, we have um, temporary disability, paid family leave, workers comp, filling in in all those spots that people are affected by this pandemic. So when a crisis hits and individuals are independent contractors, then what happens? Well, of course, we're going to provide something because we're a good and caring nation and that's what we do. But to be honest, I, I think it's really important to make the distinction that workers who were employees, their employers have been paying into the UI system for years on their behalf. And so when they need that money, it's there. We had to supplement it with federal money as well to, to give them more, but, but that money is there. Independent contractors had nothing nothing. And so what you had was a PUA program established by the federal government, something I supported, but basically tamed taxpayer dollars that nobody paid into, no employer paid into, and, um, and giving it directly to these workers who were in need. We've spent now, we will have spent close to half a trillion dollars of taxpayer dollars on individuals who had no safety net, whose employers paid into no safety net or, or the contractors that they contracted with. Um, this is an immense amount of money. And we watched cash-rich gig companies refuse to pay into the system, but lobby the federal government for this handout for their unemployed workers. So it, it, it's, it begs the question how that can be sustained long-term. Um, on top of that, um, it, it's not popular to talk about, but because the PUA system had to be kind of created from scratch so quickly, it is where you see all the fraud coming out of the unemployment insurance issue. So the close to $30 billion that California possibly has had fraudulent claims, nearly all of that comes through the PUA system because there's no tie to an employer to double check somebody's identity. So in, in traditional UI, there are those checks. And in traditional UI, even under this pandemic, we're not seeing an increase in fraud. There's no additional fraud. There's some people, of course, who try to game the system, but for the most part, very, very little fraud. Um, nearly all of the fraud that we've had has been through that system because it's not an established practice. It's not an insurance program. We have no way to check on people and, and that's created a separate problem. Um, and in California, it's not just during the pandemic. So in California, we recognized a few years back that independent contractors often didn't make enough money, um, just like the working poor. So we expanded the California Earned Income Tax Credit to cover um, gig workers and independent contractors. Now, a lot of folks who um, claim to be independent contractors and push that say, but, you know, I'm doing just fine on myself. They might have had to rely on PUA because who knows about a pandemic, right? So things happen. But, um, but they, they suggest that they make good money, and, and some do. But the reality is in California, the first year that we implemented CalEITC for independent contractors, there were 650,000 that actually got money from the state. 
And under Cal EITC, that means for an individual that they're making less than $16,000 a year. So it's not $16,000 per contract, it is their total income. And so um, taxpayers have paid close to that first year, $150 million a year so that we can supplement the wages of independent contractors through Cal EITC. Again, something I support, something I will continue to support, anything to keep individuals, especially workers out of deep poverty, but it's not a system that's sustainable and one that could crash if we continue to move towards um, these type of benefits that aren't being paid into, but are being extracted from. Um, and we're at a crossroads now. We're at a crossroads to say, do we continue to do that or do we look at other ways? Now, a lot of folks, um, you know, and the truth is, if we continue down this, we're going to have increased income inequality. It's clear. That's the trend that we've seen. And it's a trend that will continue. And we'll have a ballooning welfare state, quite frankly, um, where we have things like we're just seeing where we have a, a tremendous amount of wealth in California. And so we do get tax revenue, but that tax revenue is, is we're dependent on it um, to pay for the 99% who don't have that tremendous amount of wealth. And so um, it, it makes our, our welfare state system um, balloon and also makes us very reliant on um, a, a very volatile tax base. But what we see as solutions out there, a lot of people will point to portable benefits. And I always find this is an interesting kind of um, a discussion, if you will. And we heard it a lot from the gig companies uh, before Prop 22. And we continue to hear it a lot from individuals who think that is the way we go, portable benefits. Now, I, I have a little argument with that because, in fact, we have portable benefits. In fact, your Social Security, your retirement benefit is portable. It's different than having a pension on the job. Wherever you go, you pay into Social Security. At the end of the day, you get that money back. Um, you, you get, you know, a retirement. Unemployment insurance, it's portable. Once you leave, you get to actually access it. You know, Medicare. Um, so we do have portable benefits. Uh but they cost. And what so many of these companies, especially the gig companies were suggesting is that these portable benefits are something you pay into at a very low rate, like 3%. Now, mind you, the employer's portion of social security is in, in, in um, Medicare is 7.5%. So it doesn't even cover what employers would have to pay into um, if they were if they were treating their employees correctly as employees, right? It doesn't, it doesn't carry um, the amount, the percentage amount that employers should paint into for these programs to work out. Now, if you expect the employee to be the one paying into these portable benefits, then we need to talk about drastically increasing the minimum wage. Because the truth is, as we already saw with Cali ITC, is too many of these independent contractors are making so little money um, that they're relying on a program like earned income tax credit that they can't be expected to pay into these insurance programs even more than they're paying already. So um, I, I think if we're going to have a discussion about portable benefits, we have to discuss about the real cost of them and, and how much that's going to cost both the employee and the employer. Um, but there are better ways, right? And, and I think we're seeing it now. I think we can really look at, at what President Roosevelt did um, coming out of the Depression. And it's a lesson that it seems that this president is looking to as well. We have not heard from a president um, push a economic agenda that relied on unions um, so fully, uh, probably since Roosevelt, but, but Joe Biden has been clear, President Biden has been clear that he would like to see the PRO Act pass um, and that the PRO Act is a way to keep us um, in a more stabilized work function and to decrease income inequality. That's because he knows what so many of us do know from the labor movement, that a good union job 
solves a lot of these problems. Now, there's a lot of discussion about the PRO Act right now. There's a lot of misinformation and it's disheartening to kind of get down that road. I'm not going to speak for much longer because I am going to take questions. But let's just start with this. The PRO Act only affects the National Labor Relations Act. So the only thing it covers is people's right to unionize. That means it's not AB5. AB5 covers wage and hour. In fact, it started, Dynamics started with a wage and hour. It covers um, our tax code, everything that pertains to being an independent contractor, where the PRO Act specifically says it doesn't cover those things. Only independent contractors right to form a union and collectively bargain with, with the employer. So you know, if a newspaper has 10 freelance journalists, they'd have the opportunity to come together and form a union and collectively bargain without being um, in, in, in a price fixing situation that they'd currently face themselves in right now. Um, so the PRO Act is one way, I think. Uh, the other thing that we often hear, of course, is any of these things we do are going to be um, takeaway jobs because employers will be pushed to automate. And I, I've heard that that argument for so long. Of course, I was in organized labor before coming to legislature. And even the day I got into the legislature, right, I heard about automated cars and how quickly we were going to go to automated cars. Now, granted, that was eight years ago. And we still have not automated the cars that are going to deliver people around. And so sometimes we talk about automation in a way that is, um, we have to be clear, it's not nearly as efficient. It's not nearly um, as fast as we pretended to be. And in the meantime, there's existing jobs and we still have to protect those jobs. Those are people. Those are individuals' lives. A lot of those people will retire before automation comes along. So it's still important to make those changes. And there's also jobs that will never be automated. And I think we have to be very intentional about those jobs, caregiving jobs, childcare jobs. You can't outsource them, you can't automate them. So how do we intentionally look at those jobs in the future and um, invest in them? And I always try to compare it to our building trades, right? The turn of the century, it was this, this job that um, really needed protections. And so we built this intentional um, program through apprenticeships and through um, good pay and benefits to, to lift up construction workers into a solid middle-class career. Well, we can and must do that with things like childcare and caregiving and home care, um, because those are the jobs of the future that will never change. And that's an investment we can make as a state if we're not simply investing in our social security, in our social safety net to, to subsidize large employers, which we're doing now. Um, full employment, I don't want to go too long because I see I'm going um, half an hour, but full employment is another issue that, that should be addressed. It really became an issue post Obamacare. One of the reasons I'm a, I'm a true believer in, in eventually taking healthcare out of um, being dependent upon your job and instead making universal care independent of your job situation is providing those hours under Obamacare really cut people's uh, ability to work full time. And you have a lot of situations where um, employers employ multiple people part-time knowing they're employed somewhere else part-time to avoid healthcare benefits. And um, that's not sustainable as well. And last but not least, when we talk about the future of work, and I think this is this will be somewhere that we're going in the future to really have to deal with, and that's artificial intelligence. You know, many of our workers today are no longer managed by humans. They're really um, supervised and managed by algorithms. And so while this may seem efficient, it's also created a number of problems for the workers themselves when you don't have that human touch. Um, tech and large warehouses really adopted these measures pre-pandemic. But during the pandemic and working at home, we saw it increase exponentially. There has been new programs that really monitor every stroke of your keyboard that that um, really go after everything you do that spy on workers and, and keep them from um, 
isolating workers from one another, keeping them from collective action and doing things like even uh, monitoring their healthcare with temperature checks, which I think are valid and, and we can explain right now. But this is a place where in the future, we're going to have to really look at legislating for workers' privacies. So um, that's it. That's a lot. I know I, I went over a lot, but I, I'll be more than happy. I see questions coming in. So I think, John, are you going to ask me some questions? I think I'm back here. Can anybody hear me and see me? I'm not sure. Uh, we had a couple of questions come in. A couple of them touched on the PRO Act, which is out of the House fairly narrowly uh, and now is in the Senate and where its, its future is very uncertain. Should California pass its own version of the PRO Act? Well, first of all, I was encouraged to see five Republicans vote for the PRO Act in the Assembly, or the Congress, I'm sorry, um, the House of Representatives, because there was a, a time when we had uh, pro-labor Republicans, and obviously there's a couple that still exist, at least in Pennsylvania and Alaska. Um, so, so that was, I think, actually encouraging. California cannot pass many of the, the components of the PRO Act because we'd be, um, because it's federal, uh, federally uh, exempted. Basically, it, preemption does not allow us to create rules in private sector organizing some rules. So it would be tough. There are provisions that I think that are in the PRO Act that we could actually adopt and bring into pu some public sector employment. Some of that's tough post Janus. Um, but another place that we could bring in and, and things that I would like to see expanded is in agriculture. It's one of those areas that California, unlike other um, states, has allowed, created a board and allowed agricultural workers the right to unionize. Um, and I think we are the only state that did it um, in that fashion. Washington faced a, a challenge and is going to have to do some things um, because of a court challenge. But we actually, you know, in, in the 1970s, created the ALRB, and there's a lot we can do under that for farm workers. But anything that is um, farm workers is not dealt with under the FLSA or the NLRA, so we're allowed to deal with it. But those those other private sector employers, we have to um, defer to the federal level on some of that. Do you think AB5 is here to stay? There's a oh, lot yeah. of discussion about repealing it, and there's discussion now in D.C., uh, depending on who you talk to, hopefully or not. But uh, is it a permanent piece of legislation and is it around for a while? Well, look, if I mean, what, what we often say is in California right now, if you repealed AB5, you'd have Dynamix. And we remind folks what Dynamix would do is actually have no exemptions to the ABC law um, under wage and hour and likely be expanded through the courts. I think the courts have been very clear about what they see as massive um, misclassification of workers. Okay. So I, I don't see a situation by which AB5 gets repealed. We also know that AB5 and its exemptions protected um, a lot of employers um, who would have been subject to Dynamics four-year look back um, that, that the Supreme Court upheld. Um, and so there, there's competing interests on all sides, if you will. Um, Dynamics is a bill that um, I mean, AB5 is a bill that dealt with dynamics. So you would have to undo, I think, uh, the entire Supreme Court decision. And then if you undo that, you still have to look at Borello. What we're finding under AB5 is that a number of people didn't understand that um, California had case law that um, governed who was independent contractors. And so they'd rely on the federal IRS kind of um, factors and not realize that they were misclassifying workers here in California. They wouldn't know until there was an audit or until they got sued for workers comp. And so um, I think that 
a lot of folks who say, oh, well, we should go back to Borello are, are a little disingenuous in that they can't actually meet the Borello standard. And now that there's more awareness about this, I think um, undoing AB5 would be a lot more uh, entanglement than people realize. Off of AB5 for a second, uh, there have been several attempts, and you've had several, I think, to bring collective bargaining to employees of the legislature. One of the, I think the latest is that there are 39 people on the bill, one author, you, and 38 co-authors, which is almost half the assembly. So what's the outlook for unionizing legislative employees? Well, I want to be clear. My bill would allow the, the legislative staff the right to unionize. So they'd have a voice to determine if they wanted a union. Um, I'm hopeful this year. I, I really am. You know, I, I've gone member by member, and um, it's not as if the, the people who haven't signed in on, on as co-authors have said no. Um, they said, you know, I have some that said, I'll vote for it on the floor. Others who say, let me think about it. So we're still working. And um, I think that this is the closest we've gotten with all these co-authors, obviously, to have some kind of movement. Um, it still has to go through the process. Uh, I do know if it gets to the assembly floor, it'll pass the assembly floor. So that's my goal this year. Uh, one question here from a viewer with regulatory oversight pertaining to employment spread across so many different state agencies. What more can be done to centralize that information and make it more accessible to business owners, including language access? It's a great question. And I see, um, I, I'm pretty sure who it's from deals with uh, uh, the cosmetic industry, or the beauty industry in general. Um, yeah. And that is a huge issue we started working on before uh, Dynamics or AB5 in the beauty industry because there was, there is, and has been um, misclassification uh, for a variety of workers at coexisting with true small independent contractor owners of businesses. You know, your your the 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 gentleman who does your hair may actually run their own business and simply. Um, rent a booth. So we've been trying to, uh, we started with nail salons and really tried to get um, salons to, in their language of choice, to understand the difference between an independent contractor and an employee. Um, and, and hopefully that would start the discussion. It didn't go far. We now are looking at other ways through boards and commissions to create standards that are a lot more clear. You know, what is a booth permit renter, you know, basically like, can, can we have a standard that's very clear? The, this is what an independent contractor is at the same time. If you go to supercuts, the, the, the worker there is an employee, you know, what is the difference and can we make that clear for small businesses? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We're going to continue to work on that. Proposition 22, of course was passed, but is there anything legislatively that can be done uh, by you or others that can undo that victory? Well, if I could get seven-eighths of my colleagues to join me, we could sure try, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, there's still legal challenges, and I think that there's obviously going to be um, some action, I think, on the federal level, uh, whether it be through um, through the NLRB, through uh, the, the Department of Labor, legislatively, um, that could still upend what happened. Um, at its core, I don't think it stays. Um, and I, I think that there will be changes made. And I don't think it stays because it's not sustainable. Again, you're talking about um, a lot of promises made, but if you talk to drivers right now, most have seen their wages actually go down post Prop 22. 
very few. In fact, I've yet to find a single driver that has been able to access the healthcare premium that they promised. Um, you know, that some of the promises that they made are, are going so badly unfulfilled that I think um, they're going to have a hard time sustaining that. You ever heard of a seven eights threshold before? No, and we've done so much research, we can't find it either. So uh, I don't think it existed. And um, that's going to be an interesting challenge. A lot of people misread uh, the, the case that went to the Supreme Court immediately. They didn't say um, that that was necessarily constitutional. What they said is they're going to let the case um, come up in the traditional form. So I think it's an interesting discussion. I think it's one that um, is scary. It kind of shows the weakness, if you will, in our so-called progressive reforms, including the initiative. Um, which allows for companies to um, spend gobs of money and really circumvent forever the legislative process. So um, it, it's an interesting, I think, governance question. Okay. Here's a question about workers' cooperatives. We've been interested in worker cooperatives as a way to collectivize workers' power and shift ownership. California already recognizes worker cooperatives as a type of corporation yet worker co cooperatives fall through many cracks of support. Can you describe what you're hoping to accomplish with AB 1319? And if you see any intersection with AB 5? So absolutely, worker cooperatives are something that um, we started talking about prior to AB 5. And what we've found is there's just a lot of confusion and complication with them. A lot of this comes from the IRS code, of course, which we can't change. So um, we have been looking at how we tackle um, making worker cooperatives easier to form in California and um, making situations easier where there is truly no boss, right? Um, and, it, and when we think of cooperatives, usually the only thing people can come up with is um, food co-ops, you know, which are kind of their own thing. But what we foresee, there are, there are a lot of things that came up during AB5 that we think could, could neatly fit into a worker cooperative. A lot of um, a lot of the arts, in fact. Um, but in order to do it, we almost have to figure out how to create a new uh, framework that that works for um, those situations. And that's what we're starting the process now. I anticipate that bill will be a two-year bill. It's something that, um, especially during a pandemic, it's hard to get people's attention and say this is really um, a possibility for the future of work. And um, we think that worker cooperatives is going to be uh, a, have a bigger um, role in the future, but we've got to figure out a way to make it more digestible, comprehensible for, for people who want to create one. Do you think the end of the pandemic, assuming it's coming, uh, but at some point we emerge from the pandemic, what impact uh, does that move to normality uh, what what impacts that going to have on labor, organized labor in California? Do you think? Well, I, I have a lot of belief that between this president being in the White House and the pandemic coming to an end, people having firsthand um, experiences with why it's important to have a voice on the job um, will really help uh, the unionization efforts. Of course, uh, we you know we really do need the PRO Act because the the laws. Um, that don't exist, basically, that employers rely upon to keep people from unionizing are, are so out of whack that it, it's almost, um, you know, impossible, if you will, for, for workers to come together and form a union without intimidation, without harassment, without being fired, without, you know, having their lives threatened, if you will, livelihoods threatened. So um, we really do need labor law reform. But I think that the, uh, the, the public view, individuals' views about labor unions have, have um, 
have gone up during these times. People understand the need. People understand kind of the power imbalance as income um, inequality continues to rise as it has during the pandemic. We're going to see um, more people start to, to question that. And you, usually you can get people together and question that. That's a good basis for um, a union. So I'm hopeful. Um, I, I think that our way out of this is through strong unions. If you talk about rebuilding the middle class, if you don't want 10 cities in every city in California, if you want people to be able to afford a house, if you want people to be able to send their kids to school, if you want people to be able to pay off their debt, we know that a union job provides that advantage in order for people to be able to do that. There is no magic key with some um, payment or, or subsidy that the government can provide that, that replaces um, good, honest work in a, in a good wage. At the end of the day, are we talking about a federal preemption of, I don't know, Prop 22, AB5? Is this a federal issue the same way the NLRB was a federal with federal legislation, should this be handled by Congress instead of the individual state? I absolutely think it should be, you know, during the last um, presidency and for many years, California has led the way on a number of these questions, right? Um, you can take paid family leave. Well, we need a federal program, paid sick leave. You need a federal program, you know. Um, when you're dealing with independent contractors, we saw why it was important to do it at the federal level if out-of-state companies can simply say they just won't hire Californians to do remote work. You know, this is something that needs to be dealt with um, by the federal government. In the meantime, California is going to continue to move forward because we have always been, and, and at least in the last few years, um, I, I think we've always been, if you look at actually historically on the forefront of labor protections. And so um, we're going to continue to push the ball on these things, but it would be great if um, if some of these changes happen at the national level and we would have a standardized kind of um, rules throughout the state, the states. Great. Lorena Gonzalez, thank you very much. Uh, thanks thank for you. appearing with us and chatting uh, this morning or this afternoon. Uh, Tim Foster, I'll say goodbye to you too. If you're still there, I can't tell from our virtual, there you go. Thanks, John. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks, someone with Gonzalez. Yeah, thank you so much. And Jody, thank you. I know you're there somewhere, so thank you very much. Again, uh, Lorena, thank you very much, and we'll see everybody next time around. Thank you. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.